1: Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here, back with your weekly episode of Ranching Reboot. Wrapping up our dairy mini series today. Got my co-pilot CK, and we've got a special guest. We've got Dan Ventiker from Honey Creek Dairy, all the way in eastern Iowa, to give us yet another perspective on the dairy industry. So, Dan, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: So, um, just to, just before the show, we were talking a little bit about. Uh, About your dairy, why don't you tell us how you got your name and where you're at and uh, what kind of environment you're in.
0: Sure. So, a a brief history on our farm. Uh, My great-grandparents bought this operation, this farm here in 1941. Uh, The only building that's actually still here is the house. Uh, Every other building has been updated or, you know, replaced as, as things age and go on. Um, my, my grandparents bought the farm from my great grandparents a few years later, uh, and they farmed from the fifties to the seventies, kind of as a mixed operation, kind of like a lot of the way farms were back then. Um, in the seventies, they really focused more on dairy. They liked milking cows. They thought, Hey, this is, this is an area we really enjoy. So that's where they put a lot of their focus. Uh, and then through the eighties, the milk cows really got them through the eighties farm crisis. Uh, My grandpa added a few more cows, um, literally milked his way through it. Uh, and then we just kind of kept focusing on the cows, picked up a few acres through the 80s and or mainly through the 90s. Um, we milked in a, my, my grandparents milked in an old stanchion barn. Any dairyman listening in will know what, what I mean by a stanchion barn. On um, the year 2000, they put in a parlor, we put in a freestall barn in 1996. And I, we might talk about that a little later, but our primary housing style for our dairy cows is a freestall barn. Uh, again, that was built in 1996, so from 2000 to uh, 2019, we milked out of that freestyle barn in a parlor. In uh, 2015, uh, let me back up. In 2013, my brother and I graduated from Iowa State University. Uh, I have a degree in dairy science, a bachelor's degree. Don has a bachelor's degree in, what is it, um, agricultural systems technology. And, uh, and we farmed with my dad and my uncle. Uh, from when we graduated to 2015, my uncle decided to retire. So my brother and I formed Honey Creek Dairy, LLC. Uh, We bought my uncle's half the farm in 2015. Uh, In 2019, we installed, we added on to our freestall barn that was built in 96. We made it a little bigger. We put some robots uh, on the east end of it. We have three Lely A5 milking robots, and we also added a Lely Vector, which was the first automated feeding system in the state of Iowa. So that's uh, that's been some exciting uh, technology on our end of things. So now we're two years running into the new barn with the new technology, and I'm really happy to say things are going quite well.
1: Wow, you covered a lot of stuff there, and I was just I was busy taking notes to make sure we uh, we kind of circled back to cover some of that stuff. Um, I'm really interested about, you know, how the robot's incorporated into your operation. Um, but first, like, what, what kind of land base are you operating on there? About, you know, how many acres do you have, and, and what are you using for, and, and how many yeah. how many cattle are you running through your dairy operation?
0: So we have right around 335 ish acres. Uh, we're milking 190 cows and we raise all of our own young stock. Uh, we've been what you would call a fully closed herd since about 19. I'm going to ask my dad, like 1975, something like that, which means, uh, when my grandpa decided (coughs) to focus more on milking cows, he bought, uh, the neighbor's herd who decided to sell. And we've never had an animal from another farm come onto this farm since 1975. We've, we've grown from 70 milking head to 190 fully internally. Uh, with our own offspring uh, my dad used to bull breed obviously to keep you keep genetics separate we used to buy bulls in right
1: um, I, I was, was gonna, gonna ask about stuff. that if you guys been line breeding <laughs> since 75 that well, might be no
0: that, that's line breeding when it works
2: right <laughs> right
0: right no that's an important distinction uh Good. as for the females yeah their offspring were fully fully internal and now now we're uh fully artificially inseminated uh, the right that's bird.
2: how you control the outcrossing then
0: Right, right. So, and we can just improve the genetics a little bit faster. That's a whole another whole another thing. And I, you guys are familiar with what AI is.
2: Yeah. Um, are you guys doing any ET stuff then too to slow down the not, performers? Not yet.
0: Um, part of the robots was to give me more time to do more herd management things. Yeah. Um, when we had the parlor, we were—I mean, it was from four. I, I woke up at four, and I had to be out the door at four fifteen, and I busted my butt until 10 o'clock, just to get morning chores done. And then we had to go crop farm 335 acres after that, haul the manure, take care of the livestock. You know, the, that 4.30 to 9 o'clock was just milking cows. That was it. And then it was 3.30 to 7 in the afternoon. So these robots really freed up that schedule. So I'm hoping down the road, like embryo transfer, those kind of things are things we can we can kind of start to incorporate into our herd.
2: Yeah. It's also really hard to find good employees who want to do that same kind of work that you were t- just talking about. Yeah. and Because it's hard work and it's long work.
0: (laughs) It's more the long, like milking cows wasn't labor intensive. It wasn't like we were chucking. My dad used to do 30,000 small square bales every summer when he was growing up. We're not doing anything like that, but it was just, it's just boring. Monotonous. Robot herds actually have, if you, if you have robots and you need to hire people, they actually have better luck finding employees because people are attracted to work that requires a higher caliber of thinking. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like you can just attract a higher caliber of employee versus milking cows. People that people, good employees don't stick around long because they want to better themselves. And I don't blame them. You know they want to keep working their way up, find a better paying job. And dairies, unfortunately, just can't afford to pay you know $20, 25 dollars an hour for a milker.
1: I th- I think that's like, that's a whole different podcast right there. How bad minimum wage is going to be for agriculture?
0: Yeah. Yeah, but back to your question about like land base and everything. So um, we we before we went through our farm transition when my when we bought my uncle's half, <clears throat> we had around seven hundred acres. But we went through a farm transition. There was two families involved here, so everything kind of got split. So mm-hmm. they took half and we took half. And they crop farm, and they have side jobs. They really like doing mechanics. My uncle and his son, my cousin, so that really fit them well. They weren't big on the you know getting really you know hard and heavy at the dairy industry like we were me and my brother. And so we took the other half and we dairy farm it. So, uh, we're able to, you know, we, we do buy some feed in, but for the most part, every forage we grow our own. Um, the only things we buy in would be like soybean meal for some protein supplement, cotton seed for like a fatty acid supplement. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, like some kind of calf starter, you know, those texturized feeds. But for the most part, we try to grow as much as we can ourselves.
1: Interesting. So, I know, um, you know, I primarily know you from TikTok and your Iowa dairy farmer on there. For anybody that's on TikTok, um, you're talking about your soil carbon tests. You want to talk about your uh, your soil carbon tests?
2: Yes, please. Share. Yeah. Well,
0: and I'm I'm very interested, and you know, I, I re- I'm really glad when you and I kind of first. I don't want to say butted heads, but when. You and I first met in TikTok world. Oh, that's was, how you guys met
2: then? Butting heads?
0: Of oh, no. I, I wouldn't
1: say it was butting heads. It was just we kind of like.
0: Hot. We <laughs> were. But we, we kind of, our worlds collided on, I forget, it was some TikTok post where somebody was like, yeah, I'm glad you're more open than this guy and that guy. And oh, they tagged, comparing. Yeah. 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 And so I, I never, I had actually never seen your TikTok until he had tagged me in it. But I watched your videos. I'm like, this guy doesn't come off, you know, forward at all. Um, and I understand that some other TikTok accounts about regenerative ag or these topics or that topics they do come off more forward. I, I understand that. And uh but that's kind of how you and I met. And, well, uh, it's it's
1: hard to talk about some of these things without, without,
0: stepping on toes. without
1: stepping on toes or making somebody feel like you're making them out to be a villain or you're attacking them.
2: But that's well, like the problem in ag too, is, <laughs> right? We do yeah. the lane and then we decide to villainize ourselves. And I don't know if that's a word, but it's well, like nowhere. Yeah. We need to figure out where, commonplace or whatever. But yeah. th- the
0: problem is, and I don't want to come off forward or villainizing somebody, but some guys... You, you and I, you, we all can agree. I, I might tick off somebody listening on the podcast, but mm-hmm. there's some guys that just don't need to do what they do. Like I know a guy in this area, he fall chisel plows at 13 inches deep, spring cultivates, and then he puts soybeans in it. And the, the guy next to him just no-tills the soybeans and they're getting the same yield. So one of those is clearly better for the soil, if you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah. That kind of stuff. It's like it's hard for me to say that. And if that, that if that guy who's in this area is listening in, he's going to go, "Well, screw Dan. He doesn't. He doesn't yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but anyways, back to the carbon thing. Um, that's kind of how you and I first first met. Was we were I was talking. I forget which TikTok it was. It was something about what what we do for our ground. Um, there, there's there's so many of them. <laughs> yeah, I've done too many, but um, we do things a little different than some dairies around here, but. I'm kind of proud to say that I'm starting to see more of it in this area. So I'm not saying I'm a trendsetter, but I, I think more and more guys are experimenting with this stuff. So um, when we went through our farm split in 2015, um, my uncle and my cousin took all the tillage equipment. We, I mean, we used. I, used, I grew up moldboarding. Man, I love moldboard plowing. I still love it. It's, I mean, it's, it was a fun thing to do. But when we, so all of a sudden, I had no tillage equipment. I had no planner I, I had to do something, and I figured. Till—I mean, a, a good even a vertical tillage tool, which you know that's kind of a minimum till concept. Those were like forty grand, oh. and so I could buy a planer, a no-till planer for like twenty grand. So I, I did that, and uh, you know, again, I was I was just young and getting started farming. But the first year I was farming, we didn't do any cover crops. And we have to haul some manure through the winter. I don't have enough manure storage to get through the winter. And obviously here in Iowa, we can't pasture through the winter. There's six foot of snow out there. Not six foot, but you get my point. Um, So what really scared me, though, was I put manure out in the field all winter long. I get out to the field next March. There's no manure out there. And I, I don't want anybody to throw me under the bus and think I washed it all the way into the river because I didn't put that much manure out there that winter. But that fertilizer that I put out there that I want to use to nourish crops and replenish the soil was gone. So that fall, I put cover crop down. And that next spring, you know, so we, we do nitrate tests sometimes. And I also started doing, you probably familiar with it's called the soil Haney test. The Haney test, friend. Yeah. 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 And so we started, we've started the making The Liz Haney, Haney
1: soil test. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but... That cover crop is completely shocked me on, I mean, I'm, I don't know if we're retaining a hundred percent of the manure, but I'm very, very confident that, you know, the amount of manure that would ever run off has to be as close to zero as I could ever get. We're putting, we're putting a bushel and a half of rye out there in the field and I wish I could show you some pictures on here. Maybe I can show you on my phone, but I mean, it's a complete green map out in the field. And so right when we get corn off in the fall, we are chasing the chopper with the drill to get rye on. And we let that grow nice and tall. So when we put manure on through the winter, um, that ride before we put manure on is six, eight inches tall or more. And so that carries our wheel traffic. It prevents, it helps us with compaction. It's holding the manure back. And then next in the spring, what I'll do is uh, we'll, we'll terminate that with glyphosate or 2,4-D um, and then we'll no-till right into that ride. We don't do any tillage of any kind. Um, I want to get to the point where I can go into it green and without spraying it. Right away, and then let it live and get taller. Right, um, I, I, I just got to make a few adjustments to my planner before I can make that happen. I,
1: I, um, I think some guys let that rye get pretty tall and use a roller crimper, okay, to so just roll it flat and then no till straight into that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's got to get headed out, and because you can only kill it when it gets to a certain stage. If you yeah. roll it too soon, it won't die. So that is something I want to experiment with. I really do. The catch is when I see six foot or five foot tall rye and I have some heifers to feed, I think
1: <laughs> that's good. I can mow that.
0: <laughs> I can mow that. and I could feed it. So I, I wouldn't mind having a few more acres and I, I you know, there's going to be an exodus of old farmers in this area. So I want to get myself in a position where I can afford to buy some more acres and do some more experimenting with stuff like that. But via the soil test we've been doing, um, even since 20, when I go back to our soil maps in 2012, we've pushed our organic, I got to look how much organic matter went up. I don't think it was, a full, like, point and a half yet, uh, but we've been able to slowly start getting organic matter back up, mm-hmm. which that's something that makes me really excited.
1: So, soil organic matter increasing is, I mean, that's never, never a bad thing. And, you know, we were just talking about this morning when we're working calves with some of my neighbors that, you know, we've been around forever, and it's like the average age in agriculture just keep going up every yeah. year, and eventually – there's gonna be a cliff. something's
2: gonna happen, a reckoning, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's tough because even in the dairy industry, people love these small family farms. And I'm under the average for dairy herds. I think the average dairy herd nationwide is like two fifty. So I'm I'm smaller than that. And every and everybody really just gets worked up about that. But people don't understand. People aren't leaving the dairy industry all the time because it's low pay. It's just because people retire and there's nobody to take it over. You know, the, the reason herds have expanded so much is just because there's a void of people to take those cows over and farm it. So the bigger guy just buys them because there's nobody else. There's no other smaller guys to buy. It.
1: Yeah, it's not another new 200 head operation. It's the 2000 head mega dairy just in, in, mega dairies. Yeah. Just getting another, yeah. you know,
0: 10%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And So, you know, on the dairy side of things, it, it's kind of a, a double edged sword for me. Um, The bigger you get, a lot of people that I argue with on TikTok, they think these big farms are horrible for the cows. They're horrible for the animals. Honestly, some of the bigger farms are probably, they probably have better animal welfare than some of these small family farms, to be perfectly honest, in terms of the dairy cow itself. You know, having good management, good welfare practices for that dairy cow, good cow comfort, bigger is absolutely not worse for the animal. Now, like me personally, what I'd rather see, 10 small family farms versus one big farm. Absolutely. I, I really yeah. would. There's just not enough people interested in dairy farming. So it's just, it's so easy for those big guys just to keep getting bigger.
2: So what do you think the difference is that the correlation with the bigger branches having better protocols for animal welfare because they have to delegate it to someone else, or is it the small families having too much to do with just the, like, let's say 30 yeah. animals that. and, and that's yeah. the one that doesn't get prioritized.
0: Yeah. When you have a thousand, 2000, or I, I know a farm in central Iowa, they have 10,000 cows. It's one guy's job to make sure those dairy cows always have the sand they need. It's, you know, they use sand bedding in their stalls like I do uh, or it's one guy's job to take care of those calves. You know, it's, it's, if you have one role, like here on this farm, me and my brother, we do the robot maintenance. We add the sand, we do the calves, we do the crops, we do everything. So I'd be lying if I said, sometimes there might be a cow who could use some ketosis pills or some aspirin for a sore foot or something this morning. Mm-hmm. And all of, a, all of a sudden there's rain coming and I go mow, or I, I want to go get the hay chop. And that cow didn't get that aspirin or, or that, you know, danamine or something when she should have because something else took its took its place in terms of urgency.
1: And and that's so, not you being cruel. That's, that's no, us like as real. a producer yes. having to make a choice. Right. And everything, right, nothing is black and white except no. Holstein's. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is the advantage brown I, ones <laughs> there are some brown ones but that is serious that's seriously that's the advantage that these 10,000 cow farms have sometimes I'm envious to that that I my job if all I had to do was worry about these robots and that's it my job would be so much less stressful but all of a sudden now we're coming in a drought and I got to figure out okay do I have enough feed do I have enough of this and am I going to get in for the rain crop now I got to go spray then I got to go side dress and, you know that's that's just kind of the burden of being a, a smaller operation. That that's what mm-hmm. pushes a lot of guys away from it.
1: You know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I said this on the last two podcasts. I mean, y'all dairymen are the hardest working guys in oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, and well,
0: ro- robots are making that a lot more are making our schedules more flexible. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you've seen any of my TikToks, you know, I did one a while ago about just why we did it and be, being able to be with my kids. That's most of it. We we honestly decided that. I mean, this was not risk-free. I mean, this was a big, big gamble for well, us. Without the Absolutely. robots,
1: you're a slave to those cows and their we schedule. Are. And with the robots, they can keep the cow's schedule. You just have yeah. to make sure the robot works.
0: Right. And if I'm not here, my, our, our local service technician's 11 miles away. So I just got out to pay him, you know, 100 bucks an hour to come fix it. But at least, at least somebody can do it. Um, wait, wait, then, wait, yeah, you're, you're, wait, wait, wait
1: a minute. You're telling me you're a dairyman that actually gets to take a vacation?
0: We are. But here's the thing. The reason for that is because we have me and my brother. If it was just me and I had just robots, that, it's not a, it depends what your production goals are. If you want to be at like the production levels I'm at and you're one guy, um, robots can still really tie you down. Mm -hmm. Uh, The nice thing about having me and my brother is this whole farm can be a one-man show for like a whole week if it had to be. And so we don't have to hire anybody. But – if you are one guy and you have just robots or just parlor, it's probably easier to find people to milk your cows than it is to run your robots if you're a one man guy and you gotta leave for a week. Um, mm-hmm. But the automated feeding that we have makes that possible, the automated manure scrapers make that possible. Um, but yeah, wow. they, they definitely allow us to have a life. And well, back to my original point though, was you know, our gamble for this was if, if we screw this up and something happens, um, we, we lose the farm to be perfectly wow. honest. Yeah. And so, but we decided, I mean, we were at such a point where, and you know, I had back in 2018, I had cancer and I'm fully convinced that was because I was working myself to death. I mean, it was 16 hour days every day. So we, we came to the point where we would rather do this, improve our quality of life and risk losing the farm versus keep going the way we are and be stuck that way for the rest of my life. Cause it was going to, I mean, it was going to kill one of us. My dad was 65 and ended up, few years that he you know he was in the parlor for a while but my mom died in 2015 so between like 2015 and 2019 my dad aged 20 years i mean it, oh, yeah. it was just it was wearing him out so loss. yeah 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 that and just the man hours because after my uncle and cousin left that that was manpower yeah you know, that, that was manpower that left the farm but and it left a little bit of a void so like i said we decided we would rather do this and risk losing the farm versus keep going the way we were and, and i i never regretted that even. Even when we've had tough days where we're like, what the heck, what the heck we do? <laughs> do we do the right thing? If you know? every day was
1: easy, everybody'd be doing it, Dan.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So no, that's, that's kind of what got us to where we're at. But.
2: Can we talk about the dynamic between you and your brother? Cause if, so I, my biggest fear is getting into business with any family member <laughs> to be honest. Can we talk about that? Like, is it, yeah. is it pretty good? You guys have good communication and, how do you handle any disagreements or conflict?
0: I think what makes our relationship work is the uh-huh. fact that we are so different. Yeah. Um, Don's, like, eight inches taller than me. He's got brown curly hair, glasses. I mean, we're interests. So as, as extroverted as I am is exactly how introverted he is. So, I mean, okay. we are complete yeah. opposite sides of the spectrum. So I think that's what, that's what makes everything work. You know what I mean, we don't have too many chiefs and not enough just Indians, you know. Right. And so, but are there definitely times when things are more difficult? Yeah, I think communication, like any family farm, is probably our biggest thing. Because when you grow up together, you just kind of know each other. And so you probably don't communicate as much as you should. And you think you know what the other person's thinking, but you probably don't. Um, But, I mean, for the most part, me and Don work together a lot better than me and, like, my cousin did. Um, Now my cousin and I get along great. But mm-hmm. working together, me and my – and honestly, looking back, you know, we used to – me and my cousin used to get a lot of arguments. Honestly, it's probably because we're too alike. Mm-hmm. You know, every everything that made me so frustrated about him at times was probably exactly who I am. You know what I mean? Um, so we, we just butt heads all the time. But fortunately, you know, the things – I'm more fast-paced, uh, go, go, go. And, you know, like a guy like Don, he's very – speed is not a virtue. And so if I need something that is just somebody that's going to do something and just be task-oriented, get it done, not get distracted, he's the guy. So, like, the overall, like, 30,000-foot big-picture management stuff is what I'm good at. The in-the-trenches dirty work is what Don's really good at. And, you know, he doesn't look up and think, oh, I wish I could do a Dan did. And I don't look over at Don and think, "Oh, I wish I had his job. You know, we, we each do a really good job staying focused on what we know we're good at, and I think that's mm-hmm. what makes our, makes our partnership work.
1: Teamwork makes the dream work.
0: Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still definitely times where it's like, "What the heck are you doing?" And then there's you know, he has that towards me as well. So, but that's you'll have that
2: even without family, though. Like, right, right, right. Yeah. So.
0: So yeah, no. I mean, overall, it has its challenges, but it's uh, it's 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 been really good. It really has.
1: You know i I think one way to avoid, you know, one way to avoid a disagreement or disappointment. Is to not have expectations, but to have agreements. You know, sure. like 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 they talk about in that school that shall not be named. Uh, sure. Position agreements very posi- I'm sorry, Dan. That's ranching for profit. We just try not to say that all the time on the oh. podcast. You owe
2: us a dollar
1: now. Yeah, that's that's for Dallas. <laughs> Dallas, send me the check. Bank, bank's getting <laughs> a little bit low. But, uh, yeah, they they talk about you know, position agreements and working on the business and working in the business. It sounds like you do a lot of the the working on the business and the strategic planning and your your brother kind of, and and you guys have, you know, fairly well-defined roles and agreements on who's going to take care of what and whose authority is, is final in which situation. As long as there's good, good communication and respect, you know, that, that's the, that's the foundation of a good working relationship.
0: And I think when things aren't going well, it's because I had expectations that he didn't even know I was holding right. him to. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then I get mad because you didn't meet those, but I didn't even tell him I was holding him to it. So that's on me. You right. And you mean? have the, yeah. and you
1: have this conversation in your head, right? You have this right. fight with them in your head <laughs> yeah.
2: because he yeah. didn't I'll, meet I'll, I'll your right.
1: expectation that you thought he should. Yeah. I, right. We all do that.
2: No, right. oh, I say that on the daily. The conversation I'm saying in my head, and it's usually always worst case scenario and never has to do with that, but it usually is something you made up and you're not communicating. Yeah. So. It's your own fault.
1: Yep, uh, <laughs> yep. That's your own in progress. Fall.
2: Yep. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, uh, you mentioned earlier you wanted to circle back and maybe talk about your barns, your old stanchion barn, your freestall, and the parlor. Sure. So, so how did all that develop, and, and how are you milking your cows now? Are you milking your cow? They're milked with robots, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. I mean, you guys. Yeah. I can tell our listeners go, got to go look at my TikToks, or if you really want on this podcast here, I'm just on a tablet. I can pick you up and show your, we can go out there and I can show you some of that stuff if you want. It's up to you. But, um, basically the way this all happened, um, sorry, like you look like you're going to say something.
1: Well, it, you know, we had been we recording,
0: audio.
1: we yeah. were just <laughs> recording audio. We had been doing recording the audio on, on my console oh, gotcha. and the video, but we quit doing that because, you know, it's, I just I'm it's lazy. Just, I'm so, lazy, and I really so, didn't want to take the time to put all the video on YouTube. Honestly, no, that makes so sense. No, we just no, kind of quit doing it.
0: Forget I said anything. So no, the way this all transpired, <laughs> um, gosh, I, I don't even know. I've seen pictures of the old barn that was here, but you guys know what the picturesque, you know, straw hat overalls guy with mm-hmm. the pitchfork in front of his mm-hmm. barn looks like. You know, that's, when my grandma, she milked, um, I think the most she milked at one time by hand was 17 cows, I think is what she said. So they milked 17 cows by hand. Um, That was just in an old barn, wooden stalls. They just, cows just kind of were tied in, stood there, whatever. Um, You know, they went out to a pasture in the summer, in the winter, they put hay away. Same concept we do today. Um, And when they moved to this farm, that barn in the 70s was basically just dilapidated. Uh, and what, what I, this is a different topic, but what I'm envious about in 1971, when they built the barn that uh, at the time was the stanchion barn, we retrofitted a parlor in, in 2000. Um, but 1971, when they built that barn, it, it wasn't a contractor. It wasn't uh, an engineer or some firm. It was the whole neighborhood. I mean, I think there was like 12 neighbors all around this area that built this barn. And then guess what they did after this barn? They built the other neighbor's barn and then they built the other neighbor's barn. That is such a concept that is so foreign to millennials or Gen Z. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but that barn was built in 1971, and uh, that was what we call a stanchion barn. So it was it was a 48-cow stanchion barn. So there was 24 cows that would stand on either side. And uh, when it was first put in, that's all it was. It was just stanchions is just a term. There was a stall there. It's a head
2: you can, gate. You can lock them yeah. in, right? You yeah. can lock
0: them in. They can lay down. They can stand up. Um, so that's basically where they were in the winter. Uh, and then I, I'd have, have to ask my grandma, uh, my understanding is, uh, they would throw small square bales down from the hay to feed, and they stay in that barn all winter. Um, and they would milk a cow. And I just did a TikTok about this here last week. Um, they just had milker buckets and you hang this bucket from the cow, it goes in the bucket you carry that bucket over to the tank. And actually I take that back when it first got started, it was, it was a uh, 10 gallon milker buckets. They had like four or five or it might've been more than that, like 10, 10-gallon pails, like the old milk pails. And Bob Helmerich was our milk hauler. He started at our farm when he was 14, and he retired, I think, when he was 79 or 80. And he did that his whole life. He was a little scrawny 14-year-old lifting these uh, 80-pound milk buckets onto a straight truck trailer. And uh, he'd drive them all the way down, like, 40 or 30 miles away. So that's how we got started. And then it was a massive deal in the 70s when we had our new barn, you know, 71, the new barn. Uh, they put in a pipeline, so you just carried a milking unit to each cow, and you just plugged the milking unit in the pipeline. And holy crap, this milk goes from the cow into the pipeline, right into the tank. I mean, what an innovation that was in 1971. And that's crazy to think that that was you. If you had a pipeline and a, a tall silo that unloaded itself automatically, you had the world by the tail in the dairy industry.
1: Well, that was and only 50 years ago.
0: Isn't that isn't that what's wild? <laughs> I mean, in '71, 50 years ago, like I said, you had a pipeline, a silo with a with an unloader, and you had a gutter cleaner in your barn that took all the manure out of your barn. How, how does it get any better? And uh, so they did that. Gosh, from '71 till till '96, and I think in 1995 we or '94 we started working with a nutritionist, basically a dietitian for cows, um, and he wanted to get us on TMR, total mixed ration. So, like I said. Right. From 71 to 94, it was just throw hay in front of them, put some grain on top of it. Here you go, girls. And uh, in 94, David Weber wanted us to get on TMR. So we, my dad and my uncle said, all right, we're going to do it. They bought a mixer. They pulled a mixer next to the door. They fill up a wheelbarrow. And at the time, in like 94, they were, they, so again, it was a 48 cow station barn, right? So half of them would be outside. Half of them would be inside. The half outside, they could just dump it right in the bunk. But the half that were inside, they did it all by hand, wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow, full of TMR. And they saw the cows go up on milk just from having a better diet, a more consistent diet. It wasn't – because when you just put hay and grain on top of it, they push the hay aside. I'm going after this grain. So what we noticed by giving them a TMR, uh, we just had healthier cows, better components. They gained some milk because of that. But here was the other problem. In the early 90s, and what led to the freestall barn in 96, was through the winter months that that half of the – herd that had to go outside and eat while the other half of the herd was getting milked on those cold winter days, they kept getting frostbite on their teats. That, I mean, they had to sell like a dozen cows one winter. You, because, yeah. You can't have
1: that in the dairy industry.
0: They fall. Yeah. We need, like ears. Yeah. 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 You'd get short ears too, but mm-hmm. we just, we didn't have the teat dips and the emollients back then to protect oh, the teats yeah. from freezing. And I don't think they even back then, they didn't really have a, you know, when the milker came off, um, you know, we didn't, I don't know if they really even had much of a teeth barrier to prevent mastitis or any infection, but they just kept having frostbitten teeth. They kept having sick cows because the cold, having to go eat outside. Because like, again, Iowa, cows have to be indoors. You know, beef cows, they're not as indoors as a dairy cow, um, but they're not actively lactating, so it's not the end of the world for them. Um, they can put they're, more they're energy. They're on a lower
1: into, energy into, budget.
0: Yeah, they can put more energy into being fat, you know, and having a thick coat. Um so that's what really led them in 96. We were like one of the first, free, I don't, we weren't the first freestyle barn in the state, but we were one of the first in the area. Um, we just, we wanted to get our cows inside in, in a more comfortable area. So we built this freestyle barn where you could drive the tractor through to feed them. Holy cow, what an improvement that was. We're wheel bearing all the feed in. Um, the cows stay in there and they just, they come out to get milk and they go back in the barn. They had sand bedding. So that sand comes right out of the river in the Mississippi is where it used to come from. Now it actually comes from a mine up in Clayton County. Uh, that mine, that sand goes to fracking. Uh, this is the reject sand that's too big for fracking. Um, and by big, it's still microscopic. Um, but so we get that, so it's bone dry. It's, it's just like being on a beach out in Jamaica. It's that white beach sand is what it looks like. Um, and cows absolutely went nuts over the sand. They get feed, you know, brought to them. So that freestyle barn was a massive improvement in cow comfort and farmer comfort. So that was a huge change in 96. So 96, they we milked 100 cows, uh, 80 to 100. They bring one half of the barn out, milk them, put them back in, bring the other half out into the stanchion barn, milk them, put them back down in the freestyle barn. And then uh, parlors kind of started hitting the scene in the late 90s, early 2000s. So a stanchion barn, you carry the milker to each individual cow, you bend over, you put it on, and then you wait. You would do like six of them at a time. It was a knee, knee and back killer. The thing about a parlor is now you step down into a pit and the cows come to you. And so you're standing at eye level putting you putting milkers on. And the cows got so well trained, the minute you let them out and you open the gate, in come, we had uh, eight cows on each side so we can milk 16 at one time instead of only six. So you open the gate, the cows just file in. You just clean the udder, put the milker on, turn around, do this half, and then those half are done, let them out, do this half, and then, and then this half comes in. You just kind of went from half to half. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cows just pretty much walked in on their own. There's a few. We the last cows in every group we called the I and A group. The mm-hmm. I stands for idiots. Mm-hmm. You can figure out what the A stands for. <laughs> there, there was always there was always a few you had to bring in. Um, so, but yeah, we did the parlor from 2000 to 2019. In 2019, we put the robots in. So that's the. really condensed version of how everything
2: works but right it's like innovating the flow like if you think the flow do is it really are we creating rules for ourselves that we have to go to the cow to milk them and feed them or should the cows come to us and i think i even think it's interesting when people talk about like in better environments maybe those parlor things that go out in the field what are they called brian do you know what i'm talking about
1: mobile parlors
2: Global parlors, yeah.
1: You know, a Um, couple weeks ago was the first time I ever heard about one of those. And I don't even, like, I I haven't even wrapped my head around it. I don't know what one would look like or, you know, like the logistics of that. It's, it's, obviously somebody's got it figured out. Or it wouldn't be a
0: thing. In Wisconsin, there's an outdoor parlor. It's a seasonal parlor. Okay. Uh, I forget forget the name up there. They're a massive organic farm. They have, Mm -hmm. they, they have a crazy amount of acres. And uh, in the middle of this whole, they're kind of in the driftless region, so it's not like you can grow crop 10,000 acres. Um, but in the middle of this valley is just a big open shed. And uh, from like, I don't know what it is, like April to November, they're out there milking. And then, wow. you know, they, they, they seasonally calve and stuff. Uh, but, you're, but what's crazy to me is when my grandpa milked in the barn before we had the TMR, if mm-hmm. he knew cow 45 gave more milk, He'd give her a little extra grain, you know? And if cow 28 didn't give as much, eh, you're getting a little fat. We're going to cut your grain back. What's really cool about the robots is it almost mimics my grandpa's concept because they get a pellet in the robot. So the higher producing cows in the robot get more pellet. The lower producing cows don't get as much pellet. So we can really fine-tune their diets with these robots, which is really cool.
1: So how do your robots know who the cow is? Do you have uh, EIDs or RFID tags or barcode tags?
0: RFID, yep, RFIDs on the collar. And that collar also measures rumination. So as a microphone that senses that muscle movement. Okay. So we know how often they're chewed. Really? Yeah. So I can look on my computer and see how many minutes every cow chewed. Cut. And if one cow's minutes drop off, it tells me she's sick. they're she, sick
2: or something. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: Yep. yep. She's got mastitis, heat stress. She ate something she shouldn't have or something. She, if they're in heat, their rumination drops. And obviously their activity yeah. goes up. So, I, so mm-hmm. I know when to breed cows with that too. Um, I, yeah. So the robot keeps track of all their data. It gives her so many pounds. And, and also, too, it gives her so much pellets for how many days in milk she is because they peak, you know, like, I don't, what is the peak, like 40, 40 to, that's no, like 80 to 90 days, I think, is when they peak in milk, something like that. They'll get more pellets then, and as they get farther away, it just it just kind of starts giving them less and less pellets. And it won't milk them as often. So, like, if a cow has had 100 days since calving and she's given 150 pounds of milk, it'll milk her four times a day. But when she gets like close to her dry off, when she's like, you know, six weeks from calving or eight weeks from calving, they don't want to get milked one and a half times a day. Because the farther and farther they get away from calving,
2: the less and less benefit there is to milking them more often. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I thought gross systems were cool. This is even cooler. <laughs> yeah, this,
1: this, this is pretty cool. I'm kind of really enjoying this. Not that I didn't think I would.
2: So, oh. <laughs> uh, so, there's, so there's a part you do somatic cell counts right so usually that's an indicator of like sick cows or whatever and and so has the somatic cell count gone down which means less white blood cells in the milk right am i saying right. that right right since you went to robotics because maybe is it like more sterot, sterile or what do you what um, happened with that
0: So the reason why milk plants want lower somatic cell, and I don't have to double check on this, but I think they want it because they can get more cheese and more products out of the milk if it has lower somatic cell. Components or
2: something like that, right?
0: Okay. So the lower your somatic is, typically the higher you can push your butter, fat, and protein levels. Um, But we were always, before robots, we were always like probably 130 to 180. What kind of sucked was the first year we had robots, we were like 250 to 300. And that made me a little paranoid, but it was a bit of a shift getting cows used to the robots. Right. Uh, it was kind of a whole diet change. So you know, when we change their diets, it can kind of mess up their immune system. Um, you know, it wasn't much of an environment change because they were in the same barn. We just added on to it. Um, but we didn't. I what we really found out was with the way the robots the robots swing in and clean the teeth with two brushes. We found out we weren't getting the brushes dry enough. Mm. And so the the teats were too wet when the milker went, when the liner went to attach.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: that was, you know, bacteria love moisture. So we just had too much moisture on the teats. So we turned off the brush washing and, you know, uh, in the middle of prep time in between cows, they still get washed. Mm-hmm. We turned that off and our somatic cut in half overnight. So our, our last, uh, about eight month average here is 150 to 180. So right where I want to be. So uh, I wouldn't say it went down since we had in the parlor, but um, we get premiums if we just stay under two hundred. So, okay. yeah, I, that's, I don't get. That's I don't. Goal. Yep. Right. Yep, I, some, yep. some co-ops they give you more of a premium the lower and lower you get. Our co-op it's just two hundred thousand. Stay under that, you're good to go.
1: I'm glad you brought up brought up co-op because I've been I've been kind of wanting to ask you who your customer is, who you sell to, or you know, how you market or if there's a way that somebody out listening to this podcast can go to a store, pick up a carton and know that it came from your farm.
0: So that is probably one of the biggest misconceptions. People think if you don't go buy milk on the shelf that has Dan Ventaker's name on it, you're not supporting family farms. They think if you buy great value milk or if you buy, you know, fairway, I don't know if you guys have fairways out there. It's a popular grocery store around here. Um, you're not supporting family farms. That's actually not true. So our co-op is Prairie Farms. Um, They're pretty big. They're across, they're based in Illinois. I know they reach Texas, um, Missouri. I mean, they're they're like Illinois, Indiana. Um,
1: I I think I've seen Prairie Farms uh, labeled milk in the stores right around here.
0: Prairie Farms' average herd size is like 150 cows. Um, So their average farm is pretty small. So if you buy anything Prairie Farms, Typically, you're supporting a smaller farm. Now, if you buy anything great value, typically great value milk is going to come from those 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 cow farms. That doesn't mean those cows are mistreated. Those are just bigger farms. You can Um, only
1: get great value milk at Walmart, and I don't go there anymore.
0: Yeah, I hate hate Walmart (laughs) with a burning passion. Um, The other thing, too, like A&E milk is is here in Iowa. I don't don't know if you have A&E, Anderson, Erickson. Mm -mm. Mm-mm. It's I don't like the milk. But anyways, they get all of their milk from two farms. And one of them is that 10,000-cow farm, and another one's like a 12,000-cow farm. So that's kind of an, it, like – I hate to talk out of two sides of my mouth, right, because all farms right. – 99% of farms care for their cows. We're all but, of us
2: together. Yeah. It's, right.
0: We're all, we're all dairy farmers. But I just – I like the idea of supporting a Prairie Farms-type milk versus yeah. uh, A&E type. I don't know, but they all well, I think people, so that's, yeah, that's Brian and I are
2: kind of local wars. Like we love <laughs> supporting our local community. Right. So like, that's our big thing. And uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't think we have an opinion on where there other people should drink that way, but I just think you should definitely know what you're buying.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Look, look. Right. like yeah. hey. participating in the current system as it is, does yeah. not make you guilty of creating it, mm, as no, long right. as you yeah. wish, wish exactly, and work to change it and to change your exactly. patterns.
0: Yeah, like in Prairie Farms, isn't it any more expensive than Great Value. It's people right. think you know, well, I can't afford that. Like if it was what you know, one hundred percent, like the the organic grass fed, uh, full GMO, that stuff. A lot
2: of people just can't afford but
1: the the, the, not, the raw, the raw grass fed milk that I like to drink yeah. and raw grass fed cream.
2: you <laughs> <Can laughs> well, have you seen that? Have you seen Napoleon Dynamite? Oh, yeah. And, you know, did you ever do milk judging? Did you yeah. do that? Okay. Oh, yeah. that's,
1: that's really a, a thing.
2: That's this a real thing.
0: A
1: I thought that was dress? a joke for the movie.
0: <laughs> no, no way, man. My brother. Can, can you tell brought,
2: us the difference? Because I can't. But yeah, that's because I don't drink a lot of milk. My really. brother actually
0: went to Nationals for, for dairy judging, uh, for tasting. Yeah, he, Don could identify uh, blindfolded, like, 16 different kinds of cheeses. And uh, you had to drink, like, 12 different samples of milk. And one of them, or I'm trying to think, one of them did have an onion flavor because it meant something happened to the milk. But, like, basically the reason that came about was back in, like, the 70s and 80s, if milk had, like, a a bitter taste, it means the pipeline didn't get washed correctly. Uh, If it had, like, a sour taste, it meant the water didn't get hot enough, so there's still milk residue in the pipeline. Mm. Like, so the, the bitter taste meant you didn't get all the detergent out of your pipeline. There's still soap in your pipeline. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of all. Nobody the other, likes all soap the other. in their milk. No, I'm trying to think of all the other. Uh, I think there was like 12 different milk
2: samples, and but
0: they the all taste had different
2: th- based on how you pasteurize it, too. Right? Like, yeah. like raw versus pasteurized, you can t- tell the difference. And, oh yeah, UHT well,
1: milk has its own own distinct yeah. taste. That if you Walmart,
2: spend so sometimes we'll buy.
1: Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry.
0: Sometimes we will. We will buy Walmart milk. Just because we have three toddlers and they do the grocery pick, they do the grocery drop off where you just sit in your car and they just bring Mm -hmm. it to you. Mm -hmm. So that is one of our guilty admissions that sometimes we have to do the Walmart drop off. But like even between the Walmart milk or the Fairway milk, and I don't know where Fairway even gets their milk from, massive difference. I think the Walmart milk tastes terrible. I drink everything out of the bulk tank. I only drink the store (laughs) milk when I'm out of my milk and I don't want to come down and get one. Um, but my milk has a totally different taste. It's not, I, I don't know if it's even the pasteurization. I think it's the homogenization
2: Okay, that, that yeah. really
0: changes the taste. So interesting. Yeah. I forgot where I was going with that. Well, it,
2: I just kept seeing the Napoleon dynamite <laughs> scene in my head and I was like, I have to ask yep. this question as ridiculous yep. as it sounds, but that's so interesting. And, and,
0: and what you feed the cows can affect the taste, not dramatically, um, I know of a co-op around, or a farm around here that they sell their own milk. It's Hanson Dairy, I think, is their name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said one of the one of the things that took the longest was just fine tuning their diet for the most palatable milk. And anybody that's had my milk, I've given it to my buddies or people that will stop by. Or, you know, I, I try not to give it to tourists just because it can be rich and kind of you know if you're not used to it. it can, if you're not you know, used to yeah. raw
1: milk, it can uh, it can hit you kind Messy of hard. Up.
0: Yeah. But anybody that's had my milk absolutely just loves it. So I'm not—I I don't think what you feed the cows has a massive difference on what the milk tastes like, but it, it can definitely have some impact. Especially, I mean, if they dig it into an onion patch, I'm mm-hmm. not kidding—you would—you would absolutely taste it in the milk.
1: Hmm. Uh, it, anecdotally, so in the last couple of years of my journey into being a local vor and 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 trying to source as much food locally as I can, we've tried milk from a couple different. Uh, grass-fed dairies around, and uh, there's one. I'm not going to mention mention any names, but they have a closed herd that's made up of, I mean, some Jersey and some Holstein with some other other dual purpose crossed in there, and they've been breeding for over, I think almost 30 years. And yeah. they free, you know, they they do raw on farm sales, but they sell frozen, which I'm not a huge fan of. But it has it it tastes like the grass that's growing on their farm. Um, that That's, I mean, it, it tastes, uh, to me, it tastes like what the cows eat. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a local producer around here. I hope he doesn't listen to the podcast, but he feeds his cows a lot of Johnson grass hay, and he sells grass-fed beef. And when I eat... It like
2: grass.
1: Yeah, and it tastes like, it kind of tastes like Johnson grass. If you're not familiar with it, it's <laughs> like, it's a it's an ugly cousin of Sorghum Sedan. And it's annual. Well well. It's an invasive cousin of sorghum Sudan. That's oh, okay. uh, that's annual anerizomenus, and it's you know it, it's not bad cow feed when it's part of a, a really diverse ration. Because I mean, it, it's sure. super high I'm not in sugars. On it. right. Yeah, it's super high in sugars, but you sh- it shouldn't you shouldn't finish on it, and it shouldn't be primary diet. Mm-hmm. Is is my point? But you know, I as far as you know, the the more grass fed dairies go that I'm familiar with each, each one of them has its own distinct taste The you know, each of the three around me has its own distinct taste. And like when we used to drink great value milk, even great value, whole milk just tastes, it just tastes watery.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, milk's not supposed to be watery. It's supposed to be food.
0: Well, I think some of that is is due to the homogenization. Honestly. Um, I think, I think that plays a big role in breaking those fat particles down um, and just making it because people people don't like to see that cream separated it's an eyesore but there's nothing wrong with it it just doesn't look right mm-hmm. and so you know they homogenize it so everything stays in suspension but the other reason they homogenize it is it's easier to make ice cream um i talked to a small plant down in missouri or a college farm they sell their own milk and if they don't homogenize it it is if they want to put like flavors in the ice cream chocolate or strawberry it separates it's out. A, oh it's it's impossible to get. you'll get one bite that's no strawberry, and then you'll just get nothing but strawberry concentrate. You, you can't, they can't get it mixed in there. So, like, homogenization is necessary for some aspects. Um, but I think, too, some diets in some cows can have more effects on what their milk tastes like based off their diet than other cows. So, like, I'm trying to think of how to explain this. Um, it depends on, you know, your rumen pH, what your rumen microbe load is like, like, if you took my diet and fed it to a different herd, that herd's milk could taste different. It just depends on what... Yeah, and and that... that
1: herd could fall on its face, too.
0: Right, right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's a whole other animal feed. We're not feeding cows here. We're feeding microbes.
1: Exactly. You know? Don't, so, yeah. Not feeding the cow. i got to feed the rumen because the rumen yeah. feeds the cow. And, you know... I, I at least have some basic understanding of how that works with a beef cow, but like how how that works with a dairy cow is
2: so much more
0: intensive. Yeah, yep. yeah. I mean, it's it's the rumen is the that's that's the the furnace that really fuels any kind of milk production. So my and I talk about this a lot in my TikToks. My grandpa, if they hit seventy pounds of milk per cow as a herd average, holy crap! I mean, they were flying. Our genetics have certainly improved, don't get me wrong. But being that we don't do a lot of embryo transfer, my genetic advancement isn't as fast as some other herds, but our herd average today is 95 pounds. I have some cows peaking at like 205 pounds. Uh, Again, obviously there's some genetics involved, but the only thing we've done is figure out how to really, really fine-tune that rumen to feed those microbes, to, to, to meet the energy demands of that cow, Every, I mean, many, many cows have the potential to give a lot of milk. For decades, we just weren't meeting that potential with their diet. And so cow comfort, the diet, I mean, a lot of those things have, 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 are what's pushed production up to the levels they're at. And what's cool about our herd is we do a lot of genomic testing. So we have a really good idea of where every genetic aspect of our cows are. Uh, so when us who we genetic test, genetic, genomic test through. They mm-hmm. tell us our cows are like six to seven pounds higher than where our genetics even say we should be. So, to me, that's a really, really good sign that our diet, our cow welfare, is, mm-hmm. is top we notch. Cause, yeah, because yeah, our, our genetics um, tell us we should be lower, but we're not.
1: So, I, I'm kind of curious. You mentioned earlier that uh, that your robots will feed a little bit different based on milk yield. Is every is, Are all your cows getting the same mix, or will they Correct. get maybe a... So,
0: they eat out in, uh, anybody can look at my TikToks to see where they eat at, but they eat in the freestyle barn through a headlock, just through a, it's called a stanchion, you know, they can go in and out whatever they want. That's where the TMR is. With robots, this is a whole other can of worms. It's actually called a PMR, a partially mixed reaction. Because when you don't have robots, it's a total mixed reaction because all of the energy is coming at the feed you drop in front of them. Okay. With robots, about 90% of their diet, is in the feed you drop in front of them. The other, like eight to ten percent, is over at the robot. So in the robot, they're all getting either a a corn gluten pellet, or B, it's like a, it looks like frosted flakes, it's steamed flake corn, roasted soybeans, soy whole pellet. And that's
1: while um, they're being milked, right?
0: Right. Okay. So they get they get fifty fifty of both of those feeds. While well, it's not always fifty fifty. If it's a higher producer, it's more of one feed type. and if they're a lower producer, it's more of the other feed type. Yeah. So it, it depends how much milk they're giving um that's
2: good because it motivates them to want to use the robot right instead of scaring right. away from it or right walking at so it.
0: yeah and i've had some you know anti-ag people say well they're not going to the robot because they like it you're starving them now. like we're not starving them they could live just fine without the robot they one they really really like that food um but if they didn't go to the robot you know that corn gluten meal on that feed it is energy so they would drop on milk a little bit but they also they don't have to go to the robot um, they they like going there because they like those pellets.
1: It's a reward. It's a re- reward based it training. Well, you know, you I make it a pleasant experience. The, you give them a reward. Be,
2: yeah, and it's a relief to get milked. Like let's just, it, like it is. So I've think. seen I've yeah. seen uh one of, one of these
0: uh what's his name militant soy boy is his name on TikTok. Uh, oh, he had this. He, <laughs> it's a whole other thing too. He had this whole thing about how uh, dairy farmers say cows have to be milked or they'll be in pain. And then goes to throw dairy farmers under the bus. Like how convenient that we created a problem. And then we also have the solution. Cows aren't inherently in like, we don't, we don't milk cows because they're in pain. We milk cows because milk is a good product and milk is good for people. And Mm -hmm. cows, cows cooperate and we can get a good product. That's Mm -hmm. why we milk cows. Now, is it, painful if they don't get milked and you'll see a lot of women that will kind of oh my god when i was breastfeeding if i didn't get milked it was painful that's a dangerous correlation to start saying people yeah. are just like cows um yeah you i mean you guys have seen cows udders they have very strong ligaments running through oh, their absolutely
2: eyes. yeah and
0: a cow that can milk 205 pounds when her mm-hmm. udder is at 205 pounds um she gets milked four times a day but she has 50 to 60 pounds of milk in her udder at one moment Mm-hmm. So a cow that's giving eighty pounds a day that's getting close to dry off at any given time she has twenty pounds in her, or is it painful if she doesn't get milk that day? No. It's not. Um is it is it maybe kind of feel like oh I gotta pee a little bit? Maybe yes. there's there's definitely yeah. a tightness. But is it painful? No. Now someone will say, Well, I I, I said that on TikTok once that I was amazed at how many people got ticked off. Um uh, because they said, Well, don't get mastitis, So mastitis is painful. Not milking cacao cow doesn't cause mastitis. Can it increase their risk? Yes. Because milk might be running out of the teat, and that could the be an opportunity for bacteria right? yeah. is open. Bacteria could get in there, but yeah. we throw a, we throw a teat sealant in the in the sphincter. It's just a mm-hmm. you could I mean the salesman who who sells the stuff, he squirts it in his mouth and just it's just a keratin something, something. Um but it's uh we'll, we'll throw that in there just so milk doesn't run out. Uh, sorry, my, my robot is calling me. I'm just erasing the alarm here.
1: Um, but what's it telling so, you?
0: Uh, it's telling me the vector is out of HALAN. So I'm just going to text my brother and tell him to, uh, go fix that.
2: Um, but yeah, <laughs> Problem so solved. That,
0: back, uh, back to the mastitis thing. Yeah. I mean, not milking a cow doesn't automatically equal mastitis. and doesn't automatically equal pain. Yeah. It, it's so. a
2: bacterial thing. It's not a milking thing. Or, right. Yeah.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. Yep. So what, what did you say the robot was out of? I didn't quite catch that.
0: Uh, Yep. Our uh, vector is our automated feeding. I just texted my old man. Um, So we feed corn silage, hay silage, cotton seed, ground corn, wheat starch. um, We have straw. We have a dry cow corn silage, some rye and some corn stalks that all get fed in the kitchen. The kitchen is what supplies the mixer automatically. Um, and, uh, it just called me and said, uh, I am out of Haylitz. Come give me some more.
1: So, so, so the kitchen is just like, it's a building with just different places like that you caves. put the ingredients. It's a
0: commodity shed. It's a commodity yeah. Shed. Yeah. And, yeah.
1: And then a crane comes and picks them up and puts them in the robot. Right. And, and that's mixer, all automated. Yeah,
0: and then the mixer mixes it and sends it out to the barn.
1: That's just so wild.
0: He's got a female. <laughs> <milk. laughs>
1: <laughs> Iowa did? dairy farmer on TikTok. It's probably. It's probably all over the place, right?
0: Yeah, there's the vector the vector ones are pretty popular. Um, the one vector one I did we had like six hundred and fifty thousand views. The other one had like five hundred thousand views. The vector is a real it's a, it's an attention grabber.
1: Yeah, just going out, you know, it's probably a little bit more eye-catching than just, you know, a couple pictures of my longhorns.
0: <laughs> I, I don't know, longhorns are pretty cool too. But
1: yeah, they, they definitely uh... Longhorns definitely wouldn't cooperate with a whole stanchion headgate thing to get milked every day. That's just—I don't see that working <laughs> too well.
0: So I don't want to—I don't want to control your podcast or anything here, but I, I wanted to ask you. You know, you and I were kind of talking when we first kind of started talking about coming on the podcast about regenerative. Ag- I can't say that regenerative agriculture. Um, mm-hmm. And I—I fo- I follow like Sisters Cattle Co. on TikTok. They're—they're mm-hmm. they're a very popular account for regenerative ag. Um, you know. I guess I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in, in you just kind of giving me your your take on that and where that fits in our agricultural industry as a whole. You know, when we look at these big feedlots or like big, I mean dairies like mine. You know, I I, I like to think, even though I'm, I'm probably never going to look like what hops looks like up there in Oregon, I just don't know if I can ever get to that far. But I like to think that I can still fulfill what his goal is and what our goal is, is as stewards of soil health. You know, organic matter, you know, taking care of the environment, you know. So the way I, and I, I I'm, if you tell me that I can't do it, I'm not going to be offended. I'm fully open to any criticism, but I'd be curious to know, like, what's your big picture for the whole agricultural industry? And then like me personally, do you think a dairy like mine operating, can, can you and I get to the same place, even though my practices might not be a high density ruminant grazing operation?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I I have thought about this quite a bit, Dan, and you know, that I think about the six principles of soil health. And to me, those are kind of what more or less define what a regenerative operation is. And, and right, one right. of the, you know, minimize soil disturbance, uh, living root, 24, seven, Uh, but, but kind of the big one is you have to return animals to the land, you know, use the animals directly to add the fertility back to the soil instead of using, um, instead of using machinery to haul that. So I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, and like I said earlier, you know, participating in the current system doesn't make us guilty of creating it. You know, as long as we realize that there, there are other ways to do business and there may possibly be a better way to do business. And we need to dedicate ourselves to keep learning, learning about other practices and keep an open mind. So, what I would say to that Dan is the less outside energy, the less inputs that -hmm. that you're using and fuel is one of those categories. And, and you could even put technology in one of those categories. I'm starting to put higher forms of technology in one of those categories of, you know, extreme external input because like it's, We're recording this. uh, It's the 1st of June. This episode is going to come out. uh, Right now, I have you scheduled for the 5th of July. Um, Microprocessor shortages. Like every car manufacturer in the world, except Toyota, has (laughs) had to slow down manufacturing or stop some models completely because microchips. Samsung just announced two days ago they're not coming out with a new flagship phone this year because microchip shortage. So what I'm getting at is all this technology sits kind of on a pyramid of almost unsustainable input energy. Mm -hmm. And at some point there's going to be a big reset, right? You know, energy is going to get really expensive, you know, so. What happens to your operation? How do, what does your operation look like if you, when you woke up tomorrow, diesel fuel was $6? Right.
0: You know, what, what would it
1: look like if diesel fuel was $12? What would it awesome look thing. like if, if you're, of one of your robots broke and it was a critical part and you called mm-hmm. the factory and they said, maybe six weeks if you're lucky? Right. No,
0: that, no it's a fair question. And again, I, I want you to know, anything's on the table here. I do not get offended easily as long as we're, as long as we're respectful. I want to make that perfectly clear. (laughs) Yeah, we're good. We're good. No, but no, the, the beautiful thing. So yeah, you brought up a good thing and a bad thing that I'm facing. The good thing about the robots is my diesel bill compared to two years ago is half of what it used to be. That's because of the daily mixing of feed. Now the catch is I need diesel fuel to harvest crops, right? To run the chopper, to run the mowers, run those kind of things. So that's, there's a catch 22 there, but in terms of technology, that that completely floors me about the microchips and the cars and the smartphones. And it has frightened me a little bit. Like right now, the short term, Lely has so many parts on hand that their their back stock of parts is unreal. Now, if that were to run out and they couldn't replace it, um, I don't have a good answer. To be to be perfect, perfectly honest with you. Now, if I lost power, I had backup generators, but then we're back on the diesel thing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I don't have a great answer in terms of, if this part or that part went out, there's some parts that it's one little valve that Lely makes specifically for this part in the robot arm that I cannot run this robot without it. And if I can't get that, it's not going to milk cows. So I, I think Laley more so than maybe even Samsung in terms of a smartphone is more of an essential business. You know, we went through the COVID there was essential and not essential. That's a whole nother disagree. I mean, I, I would
1: assume Lely knows that, that they have to have parts. Immediately, right.
0: Right. So, yeah. Again, I don't have a really clear answer for you on that, on what some of that would look like. But it would, and that's definitely a chink in our armor. That if certain, if certain seven cent part can't be made, I'm screwed. I'll fully admit that. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, and and I think that you know, part of being a good uh, a good business owner is being willing to look at those weak links and address them with strategic planning down the line.
0: Right. I mean, and our dealer is 11 miles away, and they have 15 pieces of every single part we could ever need. So, I mean, in the short term, we're fine. And th- and there's been times like uh, the liner that actually the inflation that melts the teeth. Laley um, didn't have a back order of those. Laley has a good network where every single dealer had like eight months worth of of liners. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that you know they never fell short. So I mean, they have precautions in place if they were to face a back order. Like, you know, I don't think these car manufacturers were expecting a back order of microchips. So they didn't have any microchips. Well, exactly.
2: In a lot of big businesses, you have someone who's actually in charge of inventory, and the goal is to never have more inventory than you need because that's a cash flow like negative on their their right end loss.
1: Yep. Inventory bought with cash is is sitting doesn't make you money. But, yeah, I said all of them but Toyota, and I actually watched yeah. a pretty cool YouTube video on this uh, a couple nights ago. Toyota, the the reason everybody else is screwed right now is because they adopted they adopted only the good parts of Toyota's system that they saw. They didn't <laughs> see they didn't see the genius behind Toyota's just in time manufacturing system. So you have all these global supply chains that are built on you know components or raw materials arriving exactly when they are needed. And right. you know, COVID has disrupted that. There's you know massive freight disruptions. I think it you know there's a three week delay going into the port of Los Angeles or port of Long Beach right now for any container ship. Um, mm-hmm. There's four to five loads of freight for every truck on the road right now, backed up, and that's not getting any better. Yeah,
0: yeah, and uh, you know, for us with robots, I have a few chinks, but like even like those bigger dairies um you look at stuff like those big rotary parlors they take you know those these these special bearings that roll around on that track there's some farms if you can't get the right oil or the right metal for that bearing or the right steel for this part of that part they're screwed too you know every every dairy more so than like yourself um dairies are are probably one of the more and, and obviously you could say uh uh pork too but um Pigs really just, especially, and I know pigs is a whole other topic in terms of confinement and how those work. I'm not a pig guy, but I don't know if they would necessarily face the vulnerability that dairies do because dairies have so many moving parts that they all have to work together. And Mm -hmm. so there's, I mean, there's, we're definitely vulnerable to some of those things you're talking about.
1: Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to have a 10,000 head hog barn and be looking at $7 corn and $12 beans. Uh, yeah, that no, would you're be right. <laughs> that, unless you
0: can grow your own. No that's kidding. The only way.
1: I mean, it, it yeah. well, it, it's even worse right now for the feeders, for all the feedlot owners that are looking at seven dollar yeah. corn and twelve dollar beans and looking at these pens of 1600 pound fats that the packers only want to pay a dollar twenty for.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's where we have the benefit of being like Prairie Farms is they're they're big, but they, they treat us small. I mean, they're they're consistently paying us. One to two to three dollars more per hundred weight of milk than every other co-op because um, they they control how much milk they bring in. We have what's called a base program, so if I go over my base, I don't get paid as much. So I mean, they haven't like basically they're saying like, guys, we can't sell more than this amount. Don't bring us more than this amount. You know, dairy dairymen are our own worst enemy. When milk price sucks, what do we do? We ship more milk. When milk price is good, what do we do? We ship more milk.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: But, you know, back to your point or, you know, what I asked you about regenerative ag, you know, like my friend, Tom, his name's Tom Lawler. Um, He works for Indigo Ag. Um, He's focusing a lot on regenerative ag and him and I had a a big meeting. He was up here. Oh, geez. That was back in March or April already about the six principles of soil health. Um, You know, he's huge in all this stuff. And so I I, I kind of pick, I do pick his brain a lot. And I think what you guys are talking about is, is awesome. And what I'm trying, and Tom and I do butt heads very respectfully. I, I, he's my best man at my wedding. I love Tom. Um, you know, so Tom will come here and he'll say, "Dan, let's let's uh let's take this 40 acres and let's put your herd out there pasture them. We can do this." You know, and grass, I'll say, "I'll, I'll, right, I'll yeah. say, I'll say." Well, Tom, what about TMR? And he'll say, "Well, we can do this, this, this." And I gotta, I gotta back up and tell Tom, like, Tom, you know, with dairy farming here, you know, for me to pay for this barn to feed my family to feed, you know, we got two full families on this. I have to hit this production benchmark. And if I do what Tom is telling me to do to fully meet all six principles, I can't feed my family if I do that. that that's the catch-22 with dairy farming and the way this type of dairy operation works. Because um, we ship, the way I kind of told told to Tom too, is we ship 6.5 million pounds of milk per year off, this, off these 335 acres. I ship 6.5 million pounds of milk. If we were to fully incorporate, you know, the – Getting all my cows out in the fields, and, you know, which we which, which we could do, um, I would, you know, I would be lucky to get to three and a half to four million pounds of milk. Because um, the reason I'm able to ship that is kind of the same reasons I said about what my grandpa did earlier. You know, we 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 know exactly what they're eating in that TMR. It's a very controlled diet. We have a we have a very temperature controlled barn, a comfortable barn. You know, and they lay down. If you give a dairy cow the opportunity to lay down 14 to 15 hours a day, she will do it. Not out of exhaustion. Because cows, they're lazy. Right. My cows are lazy,
1: too. If they don't have to get up and work and eat, they're going to lay down.
0: Right. So, like, for a dairy cow, if she had to walk around, and again, I'm not slandering guys who have their beef cows on pasture. Like a dairy cow, if she had to walk around that pasture all day to get her food, that's less time she's laying down. That's more energy she's burning. The more energy she burns to do those things, the less energy she's going to put in the milk production. So you know, for me, paying my bills, I, I pay my bills selling milk. And so the technology is certainly a uh, you know it's not cheap. It's definitely kind of expensive. Well, it, I don't it, need I don't need to do this type of farming to pay just for the technology. You know, if uh, you just forget the technology, forget that bill, just to pay for two families. You know, this kind of the way we raised cows in this freestyle barn. That's just what it takes to keep to keep all of us fed here. So I, I you couldn't change. You couldn't
1: job. change with your cow herd that's been bred for 45 years to succeed under that type of management, you have a tuned in cow herd that's dialed <laughs> right. into your management, to right. how you're feeding, right. you know, your cows, you know, their genetics, right? Right. So yeah. if you just took your cows and tried to put them out on grass and go convert them to grass fed dairy, I guarantee you you'll fail. It won't work.
0: Right. And, no, yeah. and I appreciate you saying that. Cause my friends like Tom, again, okay, welcome to dad. You know, he, he, if, if he had his way, he would want my cows out there. Grazing, and, and not, yeah. It's not that that can't work, because there's definitely dairies that graze. Absolutely, there definitely are. Um, but I know where, where my production standards have to be met to feed two, well, my dad three, basically three families. Yeah. And I, I can't do that if they're fully fully pasture-based. So, so I, but,
1: go ahead. Here would be a challenge. How much extra work would be getting five, five different – cows that are maybe you know not tuned into what you're doing but a place to start and start somewhere small just starting to so, start in a postage stamp and see and just try it
0: the catch is is the robot right they gotta walk to the robot that ah. that's the big hiccup so there are parlor herds like again in wisconsin that organic farm they have that parlor in the middle of a field
1: uh, mm-hmm. They can make
0: that work, but like, I'm, I'm not throwing them under the bus. Okay, but they're like tank average is 55, 60 pounds per cow, almost half of what mine is. So I, I can't, I can't financially sustain that. Uh, now they have less inputs too. Don't get I, I was gonna say to that
1: you know that that's the trade-off. You know, right. You can take a lot lower production out of your cow if your input costs are also much lower at the same time.
0: Right. So here's the catch, though. But
1: finding that they, sweet spot. Is, is a little tricky, isn't it?
0: And, and this is something I'm embarrassed to admit. Uh, my feed bill, when I started in 2015, when, I, when mm-hmm. I started Honey Creek in 2015, my milk production per cow was 72 pounds per cow. And now I'm at, I've peaked at 102, but right now I'm at 95. My feed bill hasn't changed. And the reason we got more production is because we just harvested the crops at a better stage. And we, we, we started breeding cows at a, a little bit better time to capitalize on their peak milk production. Um, we added, we, we changed our stalls in our freestyle barn so they got more hours of lying time. Uh, we pushed back feed more often so they could have more access to fresher feed. And the vector dumping feed every three hours really helps. Um, but my feed bill hasn't really changed since 2015, but I'm shipping 2 million more pounds of milk per year. So, you know, if, if, if I just go back to the 75 pounds I was at, I would have been better off doing what you're doing, what you're talking about, and just minimizing my feed inputs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm to the point now where, especially with the technology I have, you know, I do have certain bills that still got to be paid, obviously. Um, But the catch is always that robot is if I get them farther away from the robot, they might not want to come up. You know, and that's that's where dairies to fully mac, to fully incorporate, uh, you know, dairy dairy herds. There's obviously some dairy herds, niche dairy herds, smaller organic, you know, in the, the 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 driftless region, you know, where you just can't grow row crops. That something like this is definitely possible, and I think it's great. But there's a lot of dairy herds like mine. Um, I mean, there's I don't know, there's what is it, five hundred thousand robots out there? I mean, there's a lot of robots. It's very, and there's some that do graze. They have what's called a graze way. So if the cow wants to go outside, this thing says, nope, you're too soon to get milk. If you go out there, you're not going to come back and get milk. So like their graze way, if they're within so many hours of needing to get milk, it won't let them outside. So those things are possible. Um, But I guess, you know, and where I'm at is I, I, want to know, do you think, I mean, is it even possible for me to meet all six principles Without getting the cows on the land, obviously I gotta mechanically haul the manure out there. But, yeah. you know, I, I love what you guys are talking about, and I think the soil health is, is so important. And I get so annoyed on TikTok that there's so many farmers that just mock it. Like, you know, I'm a no-till farmer, and yeah. there are there are so many TikTok accounts of these big row crop guys that just mock no-till guys. They'll show them pulling like a big chisel plow and a ripper, and it's like,
1: yeah, we don't we don't uh, need to mention any names of those uh of those pro tillers, no, no, no. you know. Those those guys in Illinois that like to like like to see their dirt <laughs> bare. Don't need to mention any, any of those names.
0: No, we won't. But you get my point that I really like what yeah. you guys are trying to do. Yeah, and I want to get as
2: close to you guys as I can. I think the point is context. Yeah, like, that's the first one. It's you have to realize your context and what works for you, and you having to maintain three family units is your biggest context. I think that you're still moving towards principles that focus on prioritizing soil health. But I think Brian says some things in previous episodes is like, we don't have to be a hundred percent within those six principles. If we're in 80%, then we're more aligned to be.
1: And, and and, you know, working that way. I mean, you know, the two big ones are uh, no monocultures for me. The two big ones are no monoculture and animals on the land because it's not just, It's not just the pee and the poop, it's the microbiome exchange between the cow spit, the different cows spit, you know, as they're eating different plants and they're, they're, they're tasting different things through the pasture. There, there's some microbiome exchange, but also the bacteria exchange between the soil and the cow, Sure. you know, in, in that saliva, like my friends, Josh and Gwen Hoy, they like to say that Mm. cow spit grows grass, not rain. Sure, and and you know there, there's something to that. It's not necessarily the actual amount of moisture in the cow spit. It's the microbes, it's in the the saliva, microbes right? and saliva. Yeah. in sure. in it. So you know having having your ruminant ruminants back on the land. I, to me, I think that's pretty key because you know ruminants are the only way to cycle low quality you know forage into high quality protein. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, they're not the only way. You know, sheep do it. Well, sheep and goats are ruminants. So chickens do it; they're not a ruminant. <laughs> Pigs do it, and they're not a ruminant. So, but, you know, getting some of that biology back on the land, and maybe if maybe in your context it's not cattle, maybe, maybe it's bringing in, like uh, like we were talking earlier. You know, you had a cover crop, of rye that you need to terminate. Well, maybe instead of terminating that with your cows, maybe you get somebody with some stalkers and bring in like a thousand stalkers for two days to just smash it all flat. And then you can go run your cover crop, drill through it.
0: Let me ask you this, you know, let's, let's say I'm a dairy farm. Mm -hmm. Let's say, obviously I'm a dairy farm. It's stupid to say, um, (laughs) would you, I mean, is there, I'm trying to think of like, again, I, I really, I really enjoy being challenged. I want you to know that, Mm -hmm. um, as as long as somebody is like, you guys are seeing my side of the table too. So if I got to keep my milk cows in the barn because of the robots, because of the corn silage, to me, I wouldn't see anything wrong with doing my young stock, my heifers, my calves, my oh, dry cows. Yeah. You know, yeah. I could put them out on a pasture. Perfect. Um, here's here's the catch with that, though, just where I'm at with that, is I don't know if I would have the acres to do that because that wouldn't, and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. wouldn't that require more acres to pasture no. some of my young
2: stock or some of my dry cows? Yeah. It's like carrying capacity, stocking rate, you got to mash them up. That's what I is. Yeah, it doesn't I mean, necessarily mean acres. Right. So if I have three, let's just, let's
0: just round it to an even 350. If I have 350 acres and that's, mm-hmm. I'm pretty well maxed out. I need every one of those acres to go to forage or corn grain for the milk cows, mm-hmm. um, for, you know, our starch source. If, if I can't afford to give up a single acre, can I accomplish the same thing? Can I keep our heifers? Let's say like my, our heifer farm is six miles away. It's at a different farm. Right. So none of these forages I grow from the milk cows go up there. So if, and there's 160 acres up there and 60 of that goes to corn grain. So the other hundred acres, can I, in your mind, can I feed all hundred of those, or I have a hundred heifers up there. Well, Yeah. A hundred heifers and a hundred acres, basically.
1: What do you call so, a heifer? Like a 600 pounder?
0: Uh, they go up there at about five months and they okay. leave there when they're about, um, Twenty to twenty-one months. So they're up there from five months of age to twenty to twenty-one one months of age.
1: So they're growing from they're growing from what three four hundred pounds to to 12, 1300, whatever. Yeah, 12,
0: 1,300, Yeah.
1: So they're going to average probably around eight hundred. And how many did you say there are?
0: There's, uh, I got to There's got to be a hundred
1: of them up there. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's. I mean, I, I don't know where you're at. Like, I don't know what your forage production is like there in that part of Iowa, but that seems pretty reasonable. 100 for, you know, 100 of them on 100 acres. Uh, you know, if you can run in front of them with, stay in front of them with cover crops and a diverse grazing mix and they're moved so pretty would, frequently, yeah, I, I think 100 acres would, we, would be enough.
0: How would we accomplish that like in the winter months in your mind?
1: Ooh. Well, again, I'm not, you know, here where I'm at on the plains, my grass is. You know, I, I have to haul protein in the winter. There's no way around it. You know,
0: okay.
1: Eat, even my even my adapted cows, they still need some protein to get through the winter. And the ones that are mm-hmm. less adapted, of course, they need to, need a whole bunch more. Um, but as far as winter graze strategy, you know, there's there's cool season mixes that can be planted. Um, you know, seven, three, five, seven, ten way cool season mixes that can be planted to provide a good you know good forage blend during the winter. Imagine. Uh, oh. Green cover seed, filing. yeah. Green cover seed, or somebody, somebody else, your local favorite weird seed dealer might be able to tell you. But
0: I mean, if we get two foot of snow, there's no access to those crops, though, right? You know, if it's in they, the field, they
2: can shovel through it. If you challenge them, they'll, they'll you'd try be, to access that.
1: You'd be yeah. surprised at, at what some of these cows will do to get groceries in the weather. Uh, okay. So back in February, we had you know the polar vortex that everybody was dealing with. We got a. Couple inches of snow, or that no, wasn't snow. We got um, about three quarters of an inch of ice one day, and it all came in on a north wind. So I left a lot of stockpiled forage up, a lot of tall for, a lot of tall grass still out in the pasture, a lot of stem and seed head, and that created shelter on the downwind side where there wasn't any ice. And those cows would walk from one pasture; they would just trot from one end down to the other, and then put their heads down and chase those little bits of green and those little bits of brown they could get to and not have to work through the not have to work through the ice. Okay. Then when we got 6 inches of snow, they'd go out there and they'd just dig through the snow and find something to eat. I rolled out two bales of alfalfa that they ignored for a week and they were okay. still out hustling looking for grass.
2: Well, from a labor belt, perspective, grazing right? also helps too, though, right? If you're building organic matter and... In...
1: Yeah, that that would be a great uh, that would be a great strategy. Like if you're totally covered up and don't trust your cows to be able to find find the forage under a foot of snow to go, like, confine them, roll out a bale and make them yeah. stand on that bale and smash that bale into the dirt. And then yeah. you're also adding all the nutrients from that bale that they don't eat. That's feeding right. your soil too.
0: Oh, you can tell in this area when a guy dumps a round bale out the field, that part of the field is black next spring. You know what I mean? It's obvious. It really is. So let's go back down to the dairy farm. Like, if I if, if putting my dairy, my milking herd, on the land isn't an option down here right how you know if, if what's what's our what's our goal with the soil is our goal just organic matter is it just microbes it's obviously all of it I mean there's several mm-hmm. things in the soil if there's a way I can improve the metrics you want to improve by not putting the cattle out there mm-hmm. then that changes our conversation right Hypothetically. That,
2: yeah I would say it's mimicking nature That's the goal. If you can figure out how to mimic nature, then that's going to figure out how those other, those those soil health issues.
0: Right. And I guess, you know, I I really appreciate you guys challenging, you know, like guys like me to do what you're doing. You know, if I was going to flip the table, my challenge to like you guys would be how can I do that? You know, how can Mm -hmm. I, how can I mimic getting cows on the land? And maybe you'll tell me it's just plain not possible. Maybe it's not but if there's a way i could do that i'd be all about it and, and i like to think that there's some
2: creative way oh, especially we, we if you're somehow in, make into innovation Yep. Mm-hmm. i mean if it's i, I just don't think of... there is
1: a replacement for for having livestock on the land grazing the plants and maybe not and, and maybe
0: not but... and you know
1: that there's you know we talked about um, we talked about the microbiome in the saliva so, like, your manure system, you have, it like, a central pit, right, that you, you collect and you haul out several times a year. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's different biological processes that happen when that manure is in a pit. There's different uh, aerobic and anaerobic bacteria that get to eat sure. versus when those manure are in pats out in the pasture. Because even, even when I've done super high stock density, like 50,000 pounds an acre a day,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, your, your pats are two and a half, three feet apart still. So they're not all commingled and they're all exposed to air. You know, it's all exposed to air or ground contact and it's never, you know, more than an inch or two thick. So there's different breakdown processes happening in the manure when it's dropped on the ground versus when it's dropped on soil versus when it goes to a pit. So, so there, there's some, there's some biology differences in there. I, I, I have thought about it and I just, it's hard for me to see what can replace animals on the land other than animals on the land. And, that's fair. and like I was saying, even if it is, you know, you know, even if, because of your context, you got to keep doing what you're doing. You know, maybe it is making a tweak in your, in your, uh, in your heifer development program. Sure. And, and how they eat. And maybe that's, maybe that's the easy place to it's start.
2: It's like a test trial. Yeah. Um, I wonder what the ranching paddock it's gonna say if they have any ideas they want to add into our Facebook page once they hear this episode.
1: That's a good call. If you're if you have any good ideas on uh, for Dan where you might start, take it to the Facebook group Ranching Reboot Paddock.
0: So I don't want to I don't want to draw this thing out. I, I don't know how much time you guys have, but um... oh, crap, where was I going? With I don't this? have
1: anything. I we got another half hour, Dan. We're fine. All
0: right, so.
1: People complain about if I, if the episode isn't an hour, they start, they start yelling. So.
0: So let's think about this really long-term. Like we, we've kind of made fun of those farmers out in Illinois, Indiana, that just love seeing dust fly. You know, let's, let's go to the dramatic end like them. And let's, let's go to the other dramatic end, which would be like, I'm not calling you guys dramatic, but you guys are on two upper, two, separate, two separate sides of the spectrum. I like to think of myself somewhere in the middle, lean in your guys' direction. So, let's, let's look at this a century from now or 50 years or 200 years, you know, are you guys, obviously we kind of know where those guys, you know, the soil isn't going to be great, but if I don't do what you're doing, if I don't get my cow, if my 150 acres down here on the dairy farm, if those, if that land never sees a cow, but I can meet, you know, at least four or five of the six principles of soil health, your carbon's going
1: up, your organic matter's going up, and you don't have herbicide, pesticide runoff, and you don't have soil erosion,
0: right? You
1: know, and, and that might be good enough because you know just the way some dairy operations have to exist. And I think looking at a hundred years down the line is is kind of optimistic. I have a hard time getting past you know ten or fifteen years of agriculture and 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 trying to wrap my head around the change. You know, like we were sure. talking earlier. You know, diesel fuel is—I uh, think it is it's right around three dollars a gallon right now for the cherry flavor. And, gosh, what if that goes to six bucks a gallon? What's that look like for you know for all those guys that love to burn diesel in those big tractors this fall? Right, right. Oh, like oh, I already got all my fuel bought. I got my uh, fuel contracted. Well, yeah, big fucking year. deal. What happens next year when it's twelve dollars a gallon? Right. You know, have you thought about that? It anyway. You know, so what does farming look like when the cost of input start going up? And I, it's inevitable that they will. I mean, the current administration is talking about a carbon tax and an energy tax. Mm-hmm. And depending on where they apply that, it's either just going to be a wealth redistribution scheme or it's going to be economic Armageddon.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, if they apply it at the wellhead and it's fairly applied at the wellhead... It's economic Armageddon in, in 24 months.
0: Yeah. But in terms of, like, soil health, you know, if, if I can't get a cow back on the land and I can meet the other ones, you know, I guess what's the end goal? Am I am I still going to be able to grow crops in 50 years? Or is my soil going to be so far gone? You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like look, look at the guys that like to recreational till. I mean, I got guys <laughs> in this area. They till because they just enjoy it. But whatever. It's
2: what my oh, yeah. It's what People like, love... Uh, harvesting hay Oh my god, that's the worst thing I would ever think about doing also is harvesting hay <laughs> yeah so well according know, to Bob years, Kinford
1: I like to do recreational fencing
2: <laughs> <laughs> but in a hundred years the
0: guy in my area that just loves recreational ripping is, is his yeah. soil not in your mind in your opinion is his soil just not going to be able to grow crops
1: yeah
2: well it oxidizes it's going to be sterile like uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's what I'm yeah I mean it,
1: the vast majority of farmers that like the ones we're talking about, they're not farming soil. They're farming dirt. They're farming substrate and they're
2: farming inputs and they
1: pour everything on it that the plant needs. The plant's Mm -hmm. getting nothing. It's just growing in substrate. You might as well have a damn aquaponics farm at that point.
0: Well, and what gets me is when you run, a lot of these guys run up chisel plow 14 inches deep. You're taking what God says belongs down there and you're bringing it up here. And, yeah, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm totally on your guys' page with those concepts, but um, I, I'm trying to, you know, so like, let's look at my field, my farm. Obviously, you know, those those fields are going to turn sterile. They're not going to grow crops if they like to till 14 inches deep for the next 50 years and not put any manure. It's all synthetic fertilizer. There's no manure going on that ground. There's no animals on that ground. Yeah, let's Period. go do.
1: Let's go do a Haney test on some of their soil.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I would. I, I really wanted to.
1: There, yeah. there's another good one have you heard of the uh i think it's plfa i've it,
0: heard I, we haven't done anything like that but my friend tom definitely talked about
1: it you should have some plfas run they give you kind of an idea where you're at with like the fungal bacterial micro balance in the soil okay and sure. i guess the plfa has only been around what like two years ck
2: it's pretty new yeah okay and
1: it's
2: so like, oh, I just just again we not terms it, two years is new <laughs> yeah <laughs> right
0: right yeah but like hypothetically, if I'm able to improve the metrics on the Haney test, and improve the metrics on that test, and I'm not putting cows, and I know you said you don't think it's possible to do this without putting cows in the ground, but mm-hmm. let's say let's say somehow I'm super creative, I find some way to make it happen. Yeah, you know, then our goals are the same, right? So maybe maybe my way of cattle farming isn't bad if that's yeah. possible. Just hypothetically.
2: Yeah, I guess the only thing I'm thinking of, is there an opportunity cost that we're not talking about right now by not having animals out there? Like, do we know what the potential would be? And that would be, I'm obviously hard to to validate without the cows being out there, but um, is there an opportunity cost by not doing it? Uh,
1: That's what I (laughs) see. Every time somebody's going out with a sprayer to terminate a crop is opportunity cost. It's like you're going to go out and kill that beautiful forage that cows would just love to eat.
2: Like, I think about even like the tractors you have, which how much do they cost? Like, do they cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars?
0: Well, I still got the same tractors my grandpa had with my dad. Oh had. really?
2: <laughs> yeah. I got, so, but, I, got a, I
0: got a couple new ones we use for loader work and stuff, but yeah, so no, we'll you're, have, they're super expensive.
2: We'll have some paradigm shift challenges that happen with like with branches who who also have a haying operation on the side and they decide to sell the tractors get out of the hay business and get into like the pasture business of grazing sure. and you think about you know not having the maintenance of the, animal, of the of the depreciating tractor not paying the fuel costs also the labor that's not going into that those are all to me opportunity costs that are helping the operation not losing money and and also sustaining another family. Fair enough. That, no, right, no. Brian.
1: Yeah, and you know another way to look at it is how much iron do you own that doesn't move, but one or two days a month.
0: Not very much. I mean, yeah. it, a it, lot it, of our equipment is used. I mean, we yeah. have a we have yeah. one, we have one, two, three, four, five. It, five, it
1: four doesn't sound tractors. like you have any monuments to tax avoidance. No, I mean, our,
0: our four cab tractors, you know, we have two uncab tractors. I don't use those a whole lot. Again, they're my grandpa's. But the other ones all get the lowest one is $500 hours a year. The highest one is $900 hours a year. So, I mean, we're putting a lot of hours on the on those tractors. Um and a lot of that is going to feed the cows. Um, I mean, we got manure spreaders and stuff like that, too. So, no, your opportunity costing definitely makes sense. Because I've looked at that even pasturing, if we were to pasture the heifer farm that'd be a lot of labor, I would say. I don't have to uh-huh. mix up feed and dump it every day and bag it and pay for the plastic and pay for the fuel to bag it and all that stuff. Trust me. I totally get that. You know, I'm trying, I'm, I got to make sure though I can feed the amount of animals I need to on the acres I have. And, you know, and I, again, at the end of the day, I got to ship, you know, and I, if I could lower my feed cost, I could ship less milk. You know, I, our nutritionists and me, we, we do a good job of trying to look at income over feed costs, right? Like, there's a farm down the road. They're at 110 pounds of milk. I'm at 95. Mm -hmm. Holy crap. You know, they're 15 pounds per cow higher than me. I know for a fact they're feeding molasses at the robot. That's $500 a ton. That extra 15 pounds of milk, they're buying it. They're they're buying that extra 15 pounds of milk. Mm -hmm. So that's not a place where I want to be either. And like I said, my overall feed bill hasn't changed when I went from 70 to 95 pounds of milk. So... You know that that pounds of milk I need to be at is that's still my goal, but I still like you said, I still try to keep in mind like, hey, maybe I could spend six thousand dollars less a year in plastic or in fuel or, you know, fertilizer those kind yeah. of things. So, mm-hmm. and then, and when I'm with the cover crop and uh, the manure management we're doing, when I first started farming again, I was an idiot. I was I was putting side dressing like 190 units of nitrogen out on the fields. And this year we did 80 to 90. We cut that in half, you know, our amount of synthetic fertilizer. And every year I'm lowering that. And I'm very confident someday I'll get to the point where I don't need hardly any commercial fertilizer. Because um, I look at some of the fields my grandpa moldboarded over and over, I'm paying the dues on those now. Because yeah. there, I mean, so one of the fields I have, it needs a buttload of fertilizer. And that's a field where some kind of grazing thing, or not, I shouldn't say grazing thing, I'm not trying to mock it, but you know, some type of high density ruminant grazing. Concept yeah. would do that field wonders, but instead my local co-op is saying, hey, let's go throw twelve thousand dollars of fertilizer at it
1: from a floater. Well, you of know? course they want to do that. They sell I fertilizer. <laughs> I
0: know, I know. So, you know, that that's where again I, I feel like I'm on your guys's team, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to figure out how I can do it and still meet my my production goals. You know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: Okay, so Okay, so uh you're bedding in your barn. You said you use sand that you get from a sand pit, right? And you have a like a manure urine handling system. Correct. It goes to a pit, then you pump, then you, like, then you pump out of the pit and carry it out to the field and spray it on the field, right? Is, I is know that, where
0: you're going. You're wondering about the sand going on the field.
1: No, I wasn't okay. going to say right, anything sorry, about. Sorry, sorry, I, the only thing I was going to say about the sand <laughs> yeah. is wood you chips
2: or something. Yeah. yeah. What
1: if you just decommissioned your 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 pit? And bio went char. to and went to wood chips and biochar for yeah. bedding, oh,
0: and then you so scrape cool. that
1: out. You throw that in a in a compost pile and let it get happy you for a little bit, that. and then you put yeah. it out on your field.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me let Take me ask you me you this. <laughs> let me ask you this: What if I could use my own manure as bedding?
1: Right. Use your own manure They'll, as bedding.
0: Well. So here's the way. There's some farms doing this. Dry it out. I'm right? excited about it. Yeah, they dry it out um and they use that manure for bedding now i'm not sure what that changes to the manure for what you want for soil health but the reason we use sand is because it's inorganic and it can't grow bacteria for the others yeah that's that's really the number one reason for sand and cows can lay in it and they can nestle in it nice and deep um we get two if we just have like a mattress out there with wood shavings on top compared to sand we get two or three hours more of lying time which for us equals more milk okay but we have deep bedded sand. There's farms where they run their manure through a press, squeeze the liquids out. They let it mm-hmm. compost. They let it compost for a few months. So it heats and kills the bad bacteria, the Klebsiella, the E. coli, the staph. And then they put yeah. that back in the pen for bedding. So they, they've recycled that. But again, like, if you're looking at job. the biomes for soil, yeah. and you know, I don't know if that completely just invalidates what the manure could bring to the soil or not.
1: I, I mean, it, as soon as as soon as it comes out of the back of the cow, starts it starts cooling. Yeah, you want it on the ground or on other biological materials so it can interact with it and start to break down and break down and cycle the biology and cycle the nutrients.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying.
1: You know, cause so again, the law because if that process doesn't start, like you know the pat falls on sand and it's, it's inert sand with no microbes, no bacteria in it, nothing. And I, and I get where right. you're coming from, from, from uh, a teat health and a mastitis standpoint, but that manure is just there. And it starts an anaerobic decomposition process or it starts a different decomposition process than it would if it was, you know, then that manure pat fell on hay or dried, you know, sure. cured grass or, you know, or even green So you're green saying grass.
0: put something else in the barn that that could interact with to start those processes.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So no, I I like that idea. And that's where I'm glad we can have this discussion because maybe this, maybe something like that could happen that could help me replicate getting cows out on the ground. You know what I'm trying to say? So like right now, maybe, maybe we can't find any way to have to happen, but if we can just keep this going and think there's gotta be a way, you know what I mean? I'm an eternal optimist. Like my mom was, there's gotta be a way I can replicate what Brian is doing by getting cows in the field. And maybe not, but if it's what's best for the soil and we know it's what's best for the soil, but I can't do it right now. Let's try to find some way to try to mimic
1: it if I can. And, and work and work to find some place where you can start making those experiments, you know, right. You're, you're obviously your ownership, your labor and your management on your operation. Right. And I'm the same way here. You know, I, I'm, I wear all three hats. So if ownership decides we're going to do something cool or fun, labor's going to be on board with it. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's not the tail wag and the dog situation around here. Kind of like it is there on honey Creek, you know, but then again, you know, we're always, every one of us were constrained by resources. We're constrained by our context and yeah. to do things cost money. Yeah. If land and labor were free, I mean we raise all the good cattle in the world. Right.
0: Right. Right. And I, I want to see my soil stay here for my son and my grand my grandkids right. to have, you know, so I, I don't want to be out there moldboarding my, you know, I don't want to pick names, but there's a guy, there are people in the area that still moldboard and they don't even have manure. They're just moldboarding corn stalks. And then they cultivate the and put corn on it. I'm like that's to me, that's, that's nuts. Um, to, you know, that's a whole other conversation. Again, we won't say names, but you know, I, I want to try to meet those six principles of soil health in whatever way I can. And so again, like, like we've been saying, I don't want to keep kicking a dead horse within context. Right. So,
1: you know, mimicking's one thing, and you know we're we're leaving out hoof action and herd effect. Sure. Okay. No, so I,
0: I get that too.
1: You know, and and one of the things that uh, you know grass fed dairies get dinged on a lot for is having lanes going from their paddocks, you know, back and forth to the milking parlor or wherever their wherever their situation yeah. is. So, because of the way my water's set up, my paddocks are set up here on my on the ranch. I had uh, a lane that was about 15 feet wide and it was a little over a half a mile long going back and forth to water and it was just over over a year ago. It was late May last year. We had several you know, pretty big rain events of over an inch. It's like we got an inch, then we got a half inch the next day, then we got an inch, and then we got a day off, and then we got another inch and a half. And there was a couple hundred yards of that lane that those cows were walking down that was, I looked at that and I was like, uh, okay. That's not good. Yeah. Cause it looked like a bulldozer a bulldozer had been through there. And then a roto tiller. it was just yeah. chewed up. And I thought,
0: yeah.
1: man, this is screwed. This is right. screwed. See, that's, that, that's and then expensive. I didn't go okay. over there for three months. And then I went back and it was seven feet tall, big blue stem, really? like almost the exact width of the lane. Yeah. It was crazy. I took a uh, Took Dallas Mount from from RMC with me over there, and I showed him that, and he actually has some pretty good footage of just like a 15 foot strip wide strip of big blue stem, and you can see right where it stops on one side. And, and that's because of hoof action, hoof action, okay. and herd effect. And before, okay, so what was there before was old world blue stem, which is like a garbage grass. I'd rather it not ever had been invented by the USDA and King Ranch. Thank you. But it's, it's horrible grass for, you know, cows don't really like it. It's really low on their preferred, on a palatability list. It's invasive. It's ground covers. It, you know, it's allotrophic. It poisons the soil. It's all just all kinds of bad crap wrapped up into one. That's what was in that lane. And that's what's on either side of it. But yeah. what's in that lane that we pounded so hard with the cows and even some of the, some of the paddock corners where we were doing the daily moves, those converted from old world blue stem to big blue stem in one growing season. Just just some okay. herd effect.
0: Interesting. Sure. Sure. And, that, and that's the catch too that we have to consider, you know, with, with dairies is we do have to get those cows from this place to the milking center. But, you know, that's that is probably the chink in my armor for trying to get my milking cows back on the land is the robots themselves. You know, so that that's where until the robots, until my kids say these robots are stupid, dad, why'd you ever buy these? You know, the, we can't get spare is, parts
1: for them anywhere. We're jury rigging yeah,
0: these things. I can't can't get any microchips. You know, that's <laughs> where my cows, you know, I don't want to I don't want to be a, a negative Nancy and just put my stake in the ground. But that's where for me, my, my cows are probably going to be in my barn. You know, I, I just don't see a way to get my milking herd in the field. Now, the heifers and dry cows, there's a whole other conversation. We could definitely start with something.
1: Your dry cows might not even work. Your dry cows might fall apart doing that, honestly. Possibly. Like, your heifers, and not all of your heifers will likely succeed either. But the ones that do, the ones that do succeed on that program are definitely ones to keep track of and watch.
0: Okay. No, I mean, even just from the labor savings, too, like I mentioned earlier, my dad gets older and older. You know, if in the summer months we just had those animals on pasture, it, it would save an hour and a half to two hours a day of mixing feed, delivering it, opening gates, all those kind of things. You know, and there's still some chores involved. Obviously, I'm not saying you guys have it easy. You kick your feet up all the time. But, I mean, I, I do think the way we do things, like like you mentioned before, opportunity costs, you know, I, I do think we're missing out on something from there too. But.
1: Wow. Man, it is Time has flown, and it is uh, it is starting it's to get almost late. Two
0: hours, yeah,
1: yeah. I hope I, I hope everybody that's been complaining I've, for the last couple yeah. short episodes is going to be happy with this one.
0: <laughs> well, no, I, I really appreciate coming on here. I'm, I'm really glad we could have two different farming styles mm-hmm. and, and still at least you know have have some kind of common goal. And I, I don't I don't think all of agriculture is to where we are in pursuing this goal, like you said, it is ultimately to, how do I get 10 more bushels of corn? Okay, that's what I'm gonna do. You know, that's it's... that's kind of unfortunately where some of us are like, my father-in-law, he's in central Iowa, um, you know, down there they have 98 CSR ground. It's very, it's a whole different soil type than up here. But, you know, he started to do strip till, they used to do full tillage. So, I mean, he's moving to less of less stuff. I'm trying to get him on the cover crop things. He doesn't even have animals. There's there's hardly any livestock around him except for some guys that have beef cows. So it's going to be a whole other conversation to get these mass, you know, 5,000-acre row crop farms. You know, that's that's where this is a whole other podcast. But I'd be interested to see your guys' take on uh, – Iowa is full of row crop farms. That's all we are. You know, we got mm-hmm. pigs, too. Obviously, we're the number one pig state. But how does how does Iowa make this happen? You know what I'm trying I mean, to say? I mean, you guys
2: have great soil. Like, that's the reason – right we grow a lot of you guys right. grow a lot of corn and so if you could do that imagine what else you could do that you know if you have plant diversity certain plants produce certain nutrients to the soil so if you have that synergistic quality like it's right. i think like you said people are transitioning even if they don't realize they're doing regenerative type deals they're transitioning to focus on soil health or right. you know yeah
0: right yeah so yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see you know what what happened you know these farms out there that are still doing a lot of tillage you know if those soils do start becoming more and more sterile that's going to really start staring a lot of people so and by that point it's hard to turn around you know what I'm saying
1: mm-hmm. yeah well you know like we I keep bringing up the cost of fuel you know if the cost of fuel goes up
2: it's going to be lever all of your yeah. fertilizers
1: all of your input costs are going to go up and your inputting cost is going to go up yeah. Yeah. I, I mean. The, the prices of all these fertilizers and synthetic inputs are tied to the price of oil.
0: Right. You know, right. And that, that's where I'm glad, too. Like, you know, obviously, I still rely on diesel fuel, like every dairy farm does. But the, the less and less synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, you know, our herbicide usage this year is half is what it's ever been because of our cover crop. So, I mean, we're able to start phasing out a lot of those type of inputs, too. So, but, yeah, man, two hours went fast.
1: Yeah, it did. And, uh... Yeah, I, I I don't think we left anything on the table, did we, Ceresa?
2: No, Carissa.
1: Carissa. CK. It's it's okay. CK. That's why I'm
2: CK, guys. so <laughs> <Don't worry. laughs> Brian's appreciated, so we, that's a wrap. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm. My, my battery's done. No, we've done <laughs> no. a
2: lot. I think we definitely would love to have you on another episode if, if we have yeah. another series uh, to talk about Iowa and, and stuff like that. So that'd be great.
0: Yeah, or if you guys ever have any ideas for, hey, we didn't talk about this, this might work for you guys. Or if somebody has an idea that mm-hmm. might, again, you know, with my dairy cows, keep in mind, i got to keep them in the barn. But, heck, if you got an idea for dry cows, young stock, you know, I did not Honestly, Brian, if you're, and Chris, if you guys have any information, you know, if I have a hundred heifers, and you know, you know, I need this much land, or like, if you have a program that mm-hmm. would, that here, here's how you can make this work. Send it my way, and yeah. I'd, I'd be glad to to try to incorporate that somehow and do something. Yeah, I just I have no idea what that looks like or how it would even work. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Say? So if there's a 101 on for high yeah. Grace young stock,
2: you know, send it my way.
1: You just but need you need also, a place to start.
2: Yes, yeah. It, And the difference between maybe Dan, you and someone who's more traditional is you're willing to actually have a conversation. Like, there are people I meet still today who are the nicest, but when it comes to talking about not doing a no till, they're like, no way. Like, no, 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 no no yield. And
1: yeah, yeah. I'm not doing that crap. That grandpa tried that twice. 30 years ago and it didn't work. We're never doing that shit again.
0: That's, don't even get me started on that. That's, uh, that's my biggest pet peeve. Yeah. We tried that once five years ago. It was a disaster. We'll never do it again.
1: We, we all must have the same neighbors. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we're the only smart ones.
1: Well, or we're the only crazy yeah. ones one way or the other. Yeah,
0: Probably a little bit of both.
1: Well guys, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap Dan yeah. from Honey Creek Dairy Iowa Dairy Farmer on TikTok, we really appreciate your time today. It has been an absolute blast.
0: This was fun. I appreciate it, guys. All
1: right, and that's a wrap. Red Hills Rancher, out.